Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This text for today, these texts, I should say, are one of those times, and I know it's kind of getting an old joke, but when you get to the end of our gospel lesson where Jesus talks about, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God, right? A lot of law here, right? Um, which means that in what Jesus says in Matthew 5, uh, 17 through 26, we say, well, that's a lot of law. And the temptation for pastors is to say, I think I'm going to talk about Romans 6, right? You want to talk about Romans 6 because in Romans, you hear all these great things about how we are baptized into the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that we walk in the newness of life now. And doesn't that sound so much better than the things you got to do, right? But it's amazing the things that you learn, especially when you go to the seminary, and the things that stick with you, especially from certain professors. There's one professor for, of, of, of mine that whenever we would kind of quote Romans, he would get on us and say, you know, neither the scriptures nor the power therein. I thought to myself, wow, that's pretty profound because he would get on us and say, you always want to go and see St. Paul. You always want to go and read Romans. You always want to go read Galatians because Paul makes it so easy for you. You never actually want to go and read what Jesus actually has to say. Oh, man, he cut us to the quick when he would say that, right? So in the spirit of the good Reverend Dr. David Scare, um, I will preach on what Jesus has to say a little bit more than what Paul has to say today, okay? So when we see that, well, first of all, our, our texts begin with literally the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, right? The Ten Commandments, and, and you shall have no other gods, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor, right? Simple, straightforward, clear cut. We do all these things, right? Don't you? I know I do, right? Yeah, right, sure. No, of course, we do not. And we as Lutherans, we have a great tradition of looking at God's law and saying, there's more there, right? And we're right to do so. I think when other Christians see that we have, you know, the Ten Commandments and then we have the explanation for the Ten Commandments and they say, whoa, 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 what do you mean? When you look at murder and you say, you shall not be angry, that you should not harm somebody. Oh, if you harm somebody, that's not really killing them, right? Other Christians might look at us and say, why are you laying on more law upon law? But we say, no, 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 there's not us creating new law here, it's fleshing it out. And we're not the first ones to do it. Christ himself does it in our gospel text, Matthew 5, when he says, when he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
And he says, For you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That doesn't sound like murder to me. Does it sound like murder to you? But in our sinful flesh, we like to make equivocations, right? We like to think that we say, oh, I, I don't murder. I keep that one, check, right? Check, check, check. But then if we do that and we say, well, I don't murder, you know, I don't steal. I've never stolen anything in my life. You say, I've never committed adultery. You go down the list and you say, I've never done these things, so I'm doing actually pretty good. But then when you look closer at what even Jesus has to say, you find out you fall far shorter than you actually realize. Because when we start to say, oh, don't murder? Great, that's easy. Done it. We verge on the line of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because when Jesus says, uh, when, when Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you've probably heard that the scribes and Pharisees were seen in those days as really good guys, right? At least on the surface, you've probably heard those things. I mean, we have a little bit of a bent to want to get after the Pharisees because they're not good guys in Jesus' eyes. They're, they are sinners who don't think that they're sinning. But there's been some sort of... Um, there's, there's, there's been some trying to try and say the Pharisees and the scribes were those who were seen as really good people because, well, actually they were outwardly, though, and we have to add that to that. They were outwardly good people. These were people you'd want to watch your kids, to watch your house if you go away for a while, to take care of your things because they were typically good people on the outside. But when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will, ne you, will, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, he's doing something very important. Because the people who heard Jesus at this time might have thought, hey, Jesus is not as strict as those scribes and Pharisees. I'm going to follow him, and he's going to make things easier. But Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he tells them, no, the scribes and Pharisees, they make it easier because they compromise the law so they can fit their conscience within the law's realm. So they can at least tell themselves, I've done all that I can do. I've done all that I should do. And they make extra laws to justify themselves for not keeping the whole law. It's very convoluted and crazy. But we can probably see how we do this, right? Very easily. When we say things like, you shall not murder. I don't do that. That's great. But then when we look and we see that we should help and support everyone, our neighbors, in every bodily need, that we should not harm them or hurt them, that we should not be angry with them, as Jesus says, we start to say, oh, wow, there's more to this. And maybe even that, just to get a little taste of how 
depraved we really are and how much we try and think we don't even get angry, we say, oh, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. Oh, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. Right. Sure you are. You are angry. But you're using words to make it sound like you're not. You're trying to justify yourself. Whereas Jesus' words are clear here. Do not be angry. He doesn't say, I did not... He does not come to abolish the law, but he comes to fulfill it. He comes to show you that the law is intense, and he intensifies it to show you that you cannot fulfill one single bit of it. You can't. It's impossible. And we have to be clear here. It's very interesting. We've come to a time where... For several generations, there, is, there have been more of an emphasis in preaching on simply the gospel. That a lot of pastors have shied away from preaching the law because it makes people feel bad. Or because we don't want to push people away. We want to emphasize the gospel first and foremost, but it's very interesting I doubt that Jesus would be considered a very good preacher in our day and time. You see what I mean? Jesus comes first and he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. He begins with the gospel. He begins with telling you that he has died for your sins. He has fulfilled the law for you. He does this freely. And he does this and he offers this according to his grace and his mercy so that you would have peace. But he doesn't stop there, right? He doesn't stop there and say, now that you've been forgiven, go out and do whatever you want to do. Now that you've been forgiven, live life as you just really want to because you're forgiven. And don't worry about all the minutia of doing the right things or don't doing or not not doing what you should do it's all good you're forgiven right that's not what jesus says jesus says i did not come to destroy but to fulfill for assuredly i say to you till heaven and earth pass away not one one jot or one tittle by no means will pass away from the law until it is fulfilled. He fulfills it, but then he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But with that is not separated from Christ and his grace. We as Christians... Do not relax the least of these commandments and teach others to do, to, to do the same because the gospel is so great. In fact, we uphold the law, as Paul says in Romans, right? We uphold the law. We do not abolish it. But we uphold it not under some self-righteous attitude like the scribes and the Pharisees saying, of course I can complete it all. It's so easy. We uphold the law by God's grace. And it's interesting. 
we as Lutherans have these distinctions, right? We try to make sense of things. We talk about the three functions of the law, the three uses, as some say, right? Curb, mirror, and guide. You've probably heard these things. If you come to Bible study, we're talking about it a lot in Romans. Curb, mirror, and guide. Uh, but it's very interesting. Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned with the distinctions here. And we make these distinctions to try to make sense of things. And we try to only see something as a guide, right? We say, well, okay, now that you've been saved by grace through faith, now you go out and stop being angry. Oh, but the moment you become angry, all of a sudden that becomes a mirror to show you your sin. We should see these things as helpful tools, but to really dive deep into what it means to uphold the law is not so cut and dry all the time. And not because the law isn't perfect, but because we are not. The law is perfect and good. In fact, from our psalm, we said as much, right? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The just decrees of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the, the, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist has it right. The law of God is perfect and good. We are not. So when we look at God's law, we should not relax it one bit. We should see it for what it is. And we should see that even though there is a strong negative command, the opposite positive should be held true as well. If you should not murder then you should also uphold someone in their life. If you see someone drowning, go and do what you can to save them, right? If you, uh, if you are, you see, the eighth, the eighth commandment, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Not only that, should you keep yourself from speaking things, you should speak against others who are saying something against somebody else falsely. You should intercede and say, let's not talk this way. Let's go talk to the person and see what's going on so we can actually help them and not just talk about them, right? There is the opposite side of things. And it goes on and on and on throughout God's law. And this is a way that we can live. This is a way we should live. Not an obligation to say we have to check all the boxes, but in joy and in peace, knowing that Christ has first fulfilled that law, and when he tells you to walk in his commandments, this is how we do it. And how we do it also is supplied by what St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6. That he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
How can we who are baptized children of God act as if we're not? How can we who have been proclaimed dead to sin and alive in Christ still commit sin? That's a paradox that we have to live with. Paul talks about that further in Romans chapter 7. The good that I want to do, I do not do. The evil that I don't want to do, I just keep on doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He delivers me from this body of death. That we live in a life of a cycle where we should always be continually keeping God's law firmly within our minds. Not as a burden, but in a way to show us how great God's grace is to show us just how much he had to do for our sakes so that now we who have been made alive by grace through faith can now go and live as he would want us to do. Trusting that when we fall short, even though we don't seek to, that when we fall short, God's grace holds on to us and we can always look to Christ for forgiveness. We don't have to be perfect, but let's not use that excuse or that as an excuse to not even try to do the good things God wants us to do. But St. Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When you walk, you go somewhere, you do things, you're alive. And you do the things that God has called you to do. For we know from the Catechism, rightly, which uses uses Romans 6 verse 4, that, uh, in fact, I'm going to grab it. (laughs) I'm going to grab it real quick. When it says in the fourth part of baptism, oh, goodness, in the fourth part of baptism, What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam that is in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins, with all sins and evil desires, that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. St. Paul writes in, and where is this? Written, St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That by daily contrition and repentance, every single day, we do not raise, we do not raise from our beds and simply say, What do I have to do to be justified? We don't simply raise from our beds and say, how is God going to smile on me for what I do today? We rise up because we have been raised to new life in our baptisms. And in our baptism, we go forward knowing that we are children of God by his grace, not by what we do. And even so, we joyfully do all the things that he has commanded us to do. We uphold the law as good 
now that it has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's a completely different mindset. It's a completely different life. It is completely different than what the world wants you to think of how life should be lived. The world wants you to believe that you can just go read a bunch of self-help books and say, well, as long as I can get my bad habits under control, I'm going to be okay. Your sinful flesh, though, y'all, let me be clear here. Your sinful flesh cannot be tamed. Your sinful flesh must die. It must be drowned in your baptism. Not that you need to be rebaptized every day, but that you need to remember that you have already been washed clean. Your sins are forgiven. You can look to Christ now, and instead of seeing judgment, you can see a smile. You can see his grace. You can see that he has fulfilled the law so that you can go forward and live your life. And not only that, live your life for others as well, teaching them to do all that has been commanded. That when Jesus talks about baptism in Matthew 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. He says, And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the very end of the age. Baptizing and teaching go hand in hand. So with those things, as the baptized, we have the opportunity to teach others by living a good and godly life, by helping those who need help, by speaking well of those who need a good word spoken about them in charity and in grace, by warning our fellow brothers and sisters not to do these things, not to covet, not to steal, not to murder, not to be angry. And we do all these things in love. And this is the struggle. The struggle that we live with every day. How do we live within ourselves and within the body of Christ, building each other up in faith and encouraging them to walk in the way that God has called us to walk? It is a struggle, but we do so not by our own power, but by the power that has been bestowed upon us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the one who fulfills things for us. He is the one who fulfills the law for our salvation. He is the one who sheds his blood for you so that you can live a new life. And he is the one who gives you grace day in and day out to live as a new creation. So as we go forward here, when we think of whatever sin we need to tackle, let us first think of that sin as being forgiven first in Jesus Christ. If you struggle with anger, instead of saying, I'm just going to stop being angry, pray to God and say, Lord, forgive me for my anger so that I can live without it. If you struggle with wrath, if you struggle with sloth, laziness, if you struggle with covetousness, if you struggle with blasphemy, with idolatry. Instead of just saying, I'm going to stop idolizing things. I'm going to stop blaspheming God. 
How about you begin with saying, Christ, forgive me. Lord, have mercy so that I might do these things. Also, so that when you fail, you can say again, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And believe that he does. Because he does. And all of this is for you, so that you would live your life in peace and joy. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.